And the theme, as you know, of our annual retreat this year is events in the life of St. Joseph. And while much of what we know of this great saint is recorded in sacred scripture, still there are a number of details that have come down to us from tradition and even some from the approved private revelations, such as the revelations of St. Bridget. This morning, I would like to speak to you about the flight into Egypt. St. Matthew is the only evangelist to record this event. And this is what he writes in his second chapter, verses 13 to 15. I'm just going to read this to you. And after they were departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in sleep to Joseph, saying, Arise and take the child and his mother and fly into Egypt and be there until I shall tell thee. For it will come to pass that Herod will seek the child to destroy him. Who arose and took the child and his mother by night and retired into Egypt. And he was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which the Lord spoke by the prophets saying out of Egypt I have called my son. That's Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Now, first of all, notice, St. Matthew begins by telling us, after they departed. They is referring to the three wise men, whose coming on January 6th, like the flight into Egypt, is again only recorded by St. Matthew. However, please know that the flight into Egypt did not immediately take place after the Magi had departed. For the chronology of events, according to great Catholic scripture scholars, is that the Holy Family remained in Bethlehem. They were there from January 6th even until February 2nd when Our Lady and St. Joseph took Our Lord to the temple in Jerusalem for the presentation, according to the Law of Moses. And then it is thought that they returned to Bethlehem. Some ask, well, why did they stay in Bethlehem so long if the house Joseph had was in Nazareth, which is 70 miles north of Bethlehem? And the reason is, to do a census back then, they were still counting. And everybody had to stay until the Romans said, you can go home now. Because Caesar Augustus wanted to know how many people he ruled. Uh-oh. <laughs> so the message was then, the Holy Family was in Bethlehem. And the message of the angel then that was given to St. Joseph, when we think about it, it's far from pleasant. It's not something that, naturally speaking, anyone would want to do. It was during the night. 
It was, we presume, during the winter months. The winter months in that part of the world are characterized by three things. Cold, rain, and wind. And that combination, as you probably know, uh, can be very brutal. Furthermore, the command was to leave immediately, right now, with little provisions into the darkness of night. And where were they going? They were going to Egypt. Egypt was a land that was sullied and drowning in paganism. It was a country that was a few hundred miles away. To such a command, a certain author describes the natural difficulties based on the words of the angel. First of all, to the command, arise. He says that St. Joseph had already been on a number of journeys since Our Lady and now the Divine Savior have entered his life. Think about this. Before Our Lady entered the life of St. Joseph, he wasn't traveling really anywhere. When she entered his life, he had to travel down to Bethlehem. He had to travel to uh, the village of Ayin Karem, where her cousin Elizabeth was. He went with her. And now with the divine Savior, he has to take a, a journey of a couple hundred miles. His life did not get easier with the presence of Our Lady and Christ in it. It actually became fructified with the cross and suffering. This author goes on to say that the command of the angel Take the child and his mother and flee. He says such a command when one has to flee themselves is far easier to fulfill than to have a young wife and mother and a newborn child. How many times I do hear from some of our people across the country they just can't do the traveling because they have little ones. And somebody just said to me the other day, have you ever traveled 14 hours with an infant? It's one of my family members when I tell them, you know, you ought to come out to Ron. They live in Chicago, you know, Chicago where I'm from. Come out from Chicago and, and visit in July, right? And they, they usually drive. And one of them once said, have you ever traveled with an infant for 14 hours in the car? And I, I said, no. I haven't, actually. <laughs> I, I haven't. Uh, they said, well, you know, when you do that, then you'll understand why this, you know. You know. Uh, it is a challenge. You fathers, you know this. You know, I remember my brother-in-law, Father Krug's father, when they would go on, like, vacations or something, when they, Father Krug was not Father Krug at the time, <laughs> right? And he'd have his six kids in the car, and they were young, and and I just remember, I'd say, oh, did you have, uh, did you have Mary Trace, my sister? Did she do any driving for you? Oh, no. He said, I get behind the wheel. I let her handle everything else. <laughs> <laughs> right? 
So to travel with a, a child, an infant, was not an easy thing. And furthermore, again, the command to fly into Egypt, the angel's telling him, go to a distant land where you've never been, hundreds of miles away, away from your family, your kin, your own people, to a land that is completely strange to you, their customs, their manners, everything. And then finally, be there until I tell you to come back. He didn't say stay for a week, maybe a couple years, maybe a day. Be there until I tell you. Complete uncertainty. By nature, we don't like uncertainty. We like to know when. When is this going to happen? Right? We don't want to guess. Well, St. Joseph heard the command of the angel, and as he was already so virtuous that he saw everything as coming from God, everything that happened in his life, whether it was joyful or it was sorrowful, whether it was easy, whether it was difficult, it ultimately was allowed by God himself. And thus he sought, this is God's will. I must do this. He did not argue with the angel. But all we read in St. Matthew says, who arose, took the child and his mother by night, and retired into Egypt. There is a tradition that at some point on their journey, they were actually surrounded by a gang of robbers and ruffians. And these men were accustomed to rob and sometimes even murder their victims. But the leader of the gang, as we read in this tradition, was overcome by the beauty and the modesty of the young mother and by the dignity and the courage of St. Joseph. So that he protected them from the rest of the gang took them into his tent, provided them with provisions for the remainder of their journey into Egypt. And according to this venerable tradition, the Blessed Virgin assured him that one day God is going to reward you for your kindness. That man's name was Dismas, whom we know as the good thief on Calvary who after years of theft and perhaps murder was eventually caught by the Romans and condemned to death. And what a grace to die beside Christ so that he truly repented of his sins. And on that day, that first Good Friday, he made his last crime, last, so to speak, theft. He stole heaven. He said, our Lord said, in this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now, he didn't get off easy. Hang on a cross for three hours. <laughs> That's not getting off easy. He paid his price. Right. But St. Joseph, Our Lady, and the Divine Infant eventually reached Egypt. It is said, according to St. Alphonsus, that they settled in the Egyptian city of Heliopolis. And Heliopolis means the city of the sun. 
It was not named for the sun in the sky. It was actually named for the Egyptian god, Ray, who was the sun god and the chief of all the pagan gods of Egypt. According to another venerable tradition, that when the Holy Family entered Heliopolis, they paused for some time before the great temple erected to the sun god, Ray, where he and over 300 other pagan gods were publicly worshipped. Now, notice I say he. We're talking about this Egyptian god, Ray. I, I say he, right? And I say that because the pagan gods were really demons. They were demons. This is in divine revelation. Psalm 95 says all the gods of the pagans are demons. Well, you know, it's interesting to know going back to 1986, just something to consider when John Paul II invited all the world's religions to Assisi in Italy, including pagans. You know that on that day, he sanctioned and approved the worship of demons. Because he had pagan witch doctors practicing voodoo at Assisi. And in front of him and all people, pagan gods, demons, were being worshipped at Assisi. Many people don't think about it wasn't just a picnic that went on that day. It was actually the fostering and promoting of the worship of the devil. But according to this tradition, as Joseph and Mary were holding the divine infant before this enormous temple, all of a sudden, the hundreds of pagan idols and images in the temple came crashing down to the ground. And as they walked away and walked through the streets of Heliopolis, all the idols on the street were falling down as if in worship as Christ walked, was carried by. They remained in Heliopolis for seven years until the angel returned and in sleep appeared to St. Joseph again and told him to return to Nazareth. And there's where the Gospel of Matthew picks up again. Now it is of divine and Catholic faith, of course, that our Lord Jesus Christ is a divine person with two natures. He has a divine nature that he has had from his eternal father for all eternity and a human nature that he received from Our Lady through the power of the Holy Ghost who worked, as Scripture tells us, the miracle of the Incarnation. Jesus Christ is a divine person. And as such, he is infinitely perfect, he is infinitely holy, and he is infinitely powerful. And yet, infinite power in that bundle of swaddling clothes depended 
on St. Joseph for protection. He depended on St. Joseph for his safety. He did not work a single miracle before or during or while they were in Egypt. There were no miracles. He owed his escape from the massacre of the holy innocents on account of the humility, the patience, obedience, and courage of St. Joseph. Could he have worked a miracle? Absolutely. He's infinitely powerful. He's God. But that's not how God works. God does not put shows on. He doesn't put a show on. A certain priest says it seems strange to talk of defending omnipotence. But then he goes on to say this. Joseph protected the life of Jesus and his mother by fleeing with them to Egypt away from Christ's enemy, Herod. But, he says, St. Joseph also saved the life of Jesus in his own soul by fighting against sin. That is, by keeping his soul pure, by resisting the temptations to sin in which life is so woefully prolific. So in other words, this author is saying that as St. Joseph defended Christ from his enemies, namely Herod, he also defended during his entire life the presence of Christ in his own soul by resisting temptations to sin. We, too, must defend the presence of Christ in our souls. And the presence of Christ in our souls is, yes, in a most special way, the reception of the Holy Eucharist. But the presence of Christ in our soul in a very general way is the state of sanctifying grace. And by resisting temptations, by turning away from temptations, by running away from temptations, by preserving grace in our souls, we are, as it were, defending Christ from Herod. For certain spiritual writers compare Herod to anything that can drive Christ out of our hearts and out of our lives. Anything. Anything that causes us to turn our hearts completely away from Christ, which is mortal sin, or anything that causes us to turn partially away from Christ, venial sin. These things we must ever strive to resist and to preserve Christ in our hearts by sanctifying grace. Herod is therefore a symbol for the three enemies of our eternal salvation. 
And the three enemies of our eternal salvation are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is that enemy that seeks to move us, to resolutely set our hearts on the so-called good things of life. As if our ultimate happiness is to be found here and now, in this thing or in that person. And people easily become inordinately, unreasonably, and even sinfully attached to something or someone. And such an attachment, if it's a mortal sin, can and will lead them to hell. The world thus appeals to the natural desires in man, and as it does, it obscures the supernatural. I'll never forget, in one of my travels, I was boarding a plane. I believe it was Baltimore headed back to Albany. And as I'm standing in line, as often happens, someone will turn around and say, Oh, Father, what parish are you from? And then I'll explain to them, uh, I'm from Immaculate Heart Seminary, Round Top Congregation, you know, the whole nine yards there with that, right? And this particular day, I had this older couple, and uh, they said, oh, yeah, we live uh, somewhere in Albany area they live. And, you know, we're coming going back. And uh, I said, oh, how nice. And then the woman said, Father, congratulate us. It's our one-year anniversary. Oh, okay. (laughs) Older couple, you know, I said, oh, okay, how wonderful. And then she started saying, she was non-Catholic, he was Catholic. And she started saying that, uh, and you could see his countenance just change from smiling to, as she starts saying, yeah, he divorced his wife, and then we met at the golf club or something, and then we got married, and and all of a sudden my countenance changed, and I said, oh, Oh, Houston, we have a problem. No more congratulations. Pull that back now, right? But before I could say anything, the man just said to me, Father, because he got tried to muster up some strength, he said, Father, God knows my heart. And then he walked away. I want to say, yeah, he knows your heart. And he's telling you now, repent. You can't do this. Attachment. He was not going to give her up. Because that's what it was. That's what it comes down to. This is not an uncommon thing. Very uncomfortable situation. But we got to tell them. How will they know? We don't tell them. So the world appeals to that fallen human nature. But the next enemy is the flesh. You know, we hear the word flesh. We're talking about ourself. We're just talking about ourself. We're talking about our own inordinate passions that move us in some direction for some gratification. Some people are moved by their passions to give in to their anger. Some, of course, matters of purity. Whatever it may be. It's all about me and self and what I want. 
And then, of course, there is the devil who is ever urging us on to follow the world and ourself. These three, then, the world, the flesh, and the devil, are the Herod in our lives from which we must escape. For it is by these three enemies that we will fall either into mortal sin or even venial sin. And I would like now to talk to you about mortal sin and venial sin. Mortal sin, a certain author explains that as charity is the force that unites a man to God, mortal sin is the force that draws him away from God. Completely away, I should say, from God. And why? He says, because mortal sin is the only thing in this world that can fully destroy sanctifying grace and charity in our souls. It is the greatest evil on the face of the earth. Climate change is not. Unequal distribution of the wealth is not. A wall between countries is not the greatest evil. Mortal sin is the greatest evil. And it is a terrible truth that we don't really like to hear. But it is a truth that God will condemn a soul to hell for even one unrepented mortal sin. That is a truth, divine revelation for even one. And why will he do this? Because when we die, we are fixed in the state in which we die. If we die, in other words, in the state of God's grace, We are fixed in the state of grace. Even if we have to go to purgatory, we are saved. God forbid anyone should die in the state of mortal sin. They are fixed in that state. It's irrevocable. They can't change it. The question I'm sometimes asked is, would God really, though, condemn someone to hell for all eternity? For just one mortal sin. It's almost unbelievable. And the answer is yes. Yes. And he is justified in doing this. Of course, it would be blasphemy to say otherwise. Think about this. It was one mortal sin that caused Lucifer and one-third of the angelic choir to be cast into hell. Just one sin. It was only one mortal sin that deprived Adam and Eve of God's grace and friendship and drove them out of the garden and brought ruin on the entire race. Just one sin. Because mortal sin is an infinite 
insult to Almighty God. And God takes this very seriously. There are people in hell now because they died unrepentant of mortal sin. And for a further and final proof, the passion and death of Christ, one who meditates, one who contemplates and considers the sufferings and the death of Christ. Not only does that show us how much he loves us, that he would do that for us. And as St. Paul says, he loved me and delivered himself for me. And the apostle means that every single individual human being can look at the crucifix and say, he did that for me, as if you were the only one that mattered to him. That's how much he loves us. But furthermore, that crucifix also indicates to us how terrible, how terrible mortal sin must be that he had to do this. He had to do this or we were all lost. It's really no exaggeration to say that it is better to die 10,000 excruciating deaths than to commit one mortal sin. How careful we must be. How we must ever strive to live our lives in the state of grace And flee those occasions of mortal sin as St. Joseph fled from Herod. And preserved in his own heart the grace and love of Jesus Christ. That is our number one priority. But what about venial sin? You know, when we talk about mortal sin, well, does it even matter talking about venial sin? Well, it does. And it does because, like mortal sin, venial sin goes against God's will. Although it is certainly a less deviation. And by that I mean a venial sin, a thousand venial sins do not destroy the grace of God in our souls. Not even a speck of grace is lost, as it were, by a venial sin. But to understand, though, the malice of venial sin and the harmful effects it does have on us, I want to explain to you four effects of what I'm going to call willful and deliberate venial sin. This is a very important distinction that I'll make later. Willful and deliberate venial sin as opposed to what I'm going to call later semi-deliberate venial sin. There is a difference. But what are these four effects here of a willful and deliberate venial sin? Willful and deliberate We know what we're doing, and we're going to do it. The first effect is 
the soul is deprived of many actual graces. The soul is deprived of many actual graces. Let's review some First Communion Catechism here. We're talking about grace. I've been talking about sanctifying grace, and now I throw actual grace at you. Remember, there are two kinds of grace. There is sanctifying grace, which is that state in which we are made holy and pleasing to God. That state by which we are friends with God and we have a right to go to heaven. So it's a permanent state unless mortal sin destroys it in us. An actual grace is a temporary, supernatural help that God gives us, sends to us. Yes, we don't see it. But did you know that throughout your day, God is sending you actual graces to help you keep his commandments, to help you practice virtue, to help you be patient, to help you be charitable, uh, to help you see and do his will. You can't even count how many of these temporary supernatural helps God sends to each and every individual person, even non-Christians. God sends them graces, first and foremost, to seek him, to find him. Willful and deliberate venial sin that a person is in a habit of committing, God starts to hold back. He's not so, if I could use the word, liberal in his dispensation of such graces. But he holds it back. That's the first effect. The second effect, which flows from the first, is the fervor of charity and generosity in the service of God is lessened. The fervor of charity and generosity in the service of God is lessened. By that I mean we are less generous in the performance of the duties of our state in life. Our spiritual exercises, prayer becomes a burden. It becomes difficult to pray. We tend to put our prayers off, sometimes omit them altogether, because our charity, that is, our love for God, is cooled. Usually we find some other excuse why we can't. Why we can't pray the rosary. Why we can't say our morning or evening prayer. We're just too tired at night. Maybe we are. We have a reason why we just can't say those prayers now. But our charity is cooled. Now, I'm not saying that's always an effect of this, that we can't say our prayers. right? The third effect that follows the first two is an increase in the difficulty in the practice of virtue. A certain spiritual writer called it, the practice of virtue becomes lukewarm. 
tepid. Our charity towards others, our patience with others, our patience when things go wrong, it's more difficult to do this. And finally, the last effect of a willful and deliberate venial sin is a predisposition for the commission of mortal sin. A predisposition for the commission of mortal sin. Now please understand, I am not linking venial sin that it is linked and flows into a mortal sin. What I'm saying here is one is disposed. One is ripe, as it were, to fall into mortal sin. Certain priests said of this that the soul has gradually lost ground to the enemy, meaning its strength is weakened because its charity is cooled, its fervor is lessened, and God has held back actual graces. So that the moment arrives when the enemy pounces upon him with overwhelms a soul with temptations for the commission of a mortal sin. I'm going to give you a great example in all of history of someone who was given to committing willful and deliberate venial sins. And actual graces were lost, charity was cooled, uh, difficulty in exercising virtue predisposed to mortal sin, and he fell. And now St. Alphonsus de Liguori says he's in hell now, and he's been there for almost 2,000 years. Judas. Judas Iscariot. Judas did not start out by denying Christ, betraying Christ. St. John the Apostle tells us how Judas's fall was gradual and the willful and deliberate venial sins he was given to. He was a liar, told willful, deliberate lies, and he was a thief. Our Lord entrusted to him the purse, that scripture calls it, the money. The money that our Lord was given by good people for his support. Our Lord never handled money. The only time we know he handled a coin is when he held up the denarius and said to the, the Pharisee, whose image is on here? He said Caesar's. He said, render to Caesar what is Caesar and the God of things that are God's. He had no use for money himself. But he left it with the apostle, especially Judas. You take care of the money. And Judas did have a mind for money, but he was greedy and he was stealing from that money. And then over time, he began to have a disgust for Christ. He didn't want to be around him. He wanted nothing to do with him. It was hard. Why are we doing all this traveling around? And, and then when all the people walked away from Christ, when he told them about the real presence, 
in the Holy Eucharist. St. John indicates Judas was the only apostle who didn't believe. But he didn't have the honesty to walk away. He stayed. I think he still had some hope he was going to make money through Christ. And fame and fortune. But then the terrible events ensued and he fell. And now as St. Alphonsus says, he's lost. Certainly that is an extreme example. But still, the lesson for us is we cannot be content that something is a venial sin and it's no big deal. It's no big deal if someone is given to deliberately lying, petty thefts, or deliberate anger held against another person. Or they're deliberately uncharitable to people. They won't talk to them. They ignore them. These and other little venial sins that someone fosters the habit of getting into, those four effects go into play. And that is why after mortal sin, the second greatest evil in the world is deliberate and willful venial sin. St. Teresa of Avila said, Can anything be small if it offends God? Now, what about semi-deliberate Venial sins. What are we talking about there? Because there's a difference. A semi-deliberate venial sin by its nature is committed through weakness. And these are the key words. Weakness and frailty. It is not willful. It is not malicious. Uh, Example is someone just reacts with impatience, but they didn't mean it. Just reacts. Impatience. Anger gets the better. Our passion gets the better of us. Oh, what did I do? Uh, How often this happens, uh, right, in the the car, (laughs) having been going down to Long Island uh, uh, for the last uh, so many months, every month, and always just when I think, you know, I'm going to be patient with all this traffic because, you know, up here, we don't know what, we don't even know how to spell traffic up here. <laughs> right? So we get down to Long Island. I always tell myself I'm not going to let the, the pile up on the Northern State Parkway eastbound bother me anymore. You know, I, I'm going to expect, you know, it's going to be there. And, and one trip, I, I, was, I was kind of patting myself on the back, right? Pride goeth before the fall, right? <laughs> I get, if you know where the chapel on Long Island is, St. Pius V Chapel, I get to the corner of Berry Hill Road and 25A there. And I'm about to take the left there. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you are Long Island, right? Just as I'm turning left, some lady across was turning right. She cut me right off. I mean, she literally drove right in front of me. And I screamed, how dare you? <laughs> right? I thought it was justified, you know. <laughs> but those are the things that just grab us. And then we, so, then we think, oh, wait, stop, right? That's a semi-deliberate venial sin right there. 
There's no malice there. It's not like someone who knows they're going to tell lies. Never forget when I was taking the course in physics at the university before I was in the seminary years ago. And we had a big exam scheduled. And this gal comes in. She was actually sat next to me in the class. And she comes in, and she's crying, and she's saying to the professor, her aunt died last night. She was with her. She really is not ready for the test. And he said, no, you have to take the test. It's been scheduled, and, you know, it's too bad, he said. You know, they have to, I guess they can be pretty cold and indifferent, right? But she is crying and crying, please, I'm not ready, and this and that. I was helping my mother, this and that. And, you know, I'm about, I'm like kind of tearing up too. Like, oh, this poor girl, like, you know, her aunt died, and your favorite aunt and all this stuff, everything, right? So he said, okay. He said, you could take it later today. Then he put her in the corner there, and he said, go ahead, you can study. And the rest of us took the exam, right? So after the class, you know, I go over there and I say, I'm so sorry to hear about your aunt. She said, are you kidding me? I lied. <laughs> what? Willful and deliberate. Willful and deliberate. So, on account of the weakness of our nature, though, it is often impossible, spiritual writers tell us, for us to avoid every little fault, semi-deliberate, venial sin of frailty. It's impossible. St. Therese of the Child Jesus said of them, that the semi-deliberate venial sins, and these are her own words here, they do not grieve the good God. They do not grieve him. He is not so offended by them as he is by willful and deliberate venial sin. So, understanding the difference, though, that doesn't mean we don't do anything about it and strive to practice a greater virtue to overcome that. Here now are some ways to combat venial sin in our life. The first one is prayer. Everything begins with prayer. We must pray every day. And we must pray every day according to our state in life. God does not expect you to pray the number of hours that the sisters, for example, spend in prayer. He knows you have the duties of your state in life and the single state or as husbands and fathers and you work. You understand. But nonetheless, we can all say some prayers during the day to raise our mind and heart to God and to ask him for more graces to follow his holy will. If you can pray like a consecrated religious, send some potters and aves this way. I'd appreciate it. (laughs) The second thing is the examination of conscience. After prayers every day, a small examination of conscience. And by this I mean in particular, Not a very lengthy sketch of our whole day, but rather focus in. Are there any willful 
<coughs> excuse me, and deliberate venial sins that I am given to? Have I formed some kind of a habit here? If not, fine. And then we look at our, did I lose my patience here? Did I lose my charity here? Did I let passion get the better of me? Did I do something without thinking? And then, oh, later. Then we think about those. And then we make our act of contrition. After that, the third means we can do to help us overcome venial sin is penance. Doing penance. By that I mean acts of self-denial. We can deny ourselves some little thing on some day. Like, for example, on Saturdays, we can deny ourselves perhaps something in honor of Our Lady. Something we like, like no cream in the coffee or something. But you know what the best penance is? The best mortification that we can do is what God himself sends us. And by that I mean, like St. Joseph saw everything as coming from God and then embraced it with patience and humility He lowered himself to the flight into Egypt and patiently carried out the commands of God. When God sends us a flight into Egypt, some situation arises that is disagreeable to us. We embrace it. We see it as coming from God and we patiently, patiently persevere in the midst of it. God sends bodily pain. By send, I mean at least his all-permissive will allows things to happen. God sends discomfort. God sends sickness. God sends things that just go against us. Some are major calamities. Some are not. But there's always a reason when something, something happens in our life, especially even if it's a life-changing thing. It is ultimately allowed by God. And we must humbly obey, patiently accept it, and by doing that, we are mortifying ourselves. A few weeks ago, I was, uh, last Sunday of April, I was actually going out to our chapels. We have a small chapel in Idaho Falls, Idaho, which actually, 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 when we started, we had about 15 people. We're up to about sometimes 40 people there. And we have a small chapel in Durango, Colorado. You know where Durango is? Nobody knows where Durango is, right? <laughs> All the way down in the south of Colorado, the furthest most place in Colorado you, you never even think about, right? But it is... A beautiful area. It's the Wild West, actually. So I was traveling out there. Father uh, Curatolo uh, makes our uh, travel arrangements. And I get my itinerary, and I look at this thing, and I go, oh, no. I'm traveling Albany, Newark, New Jersey, Denver, Idaho Falls. Newark. 
I don't like Newark. Right? Does anybody here like traveling through Newark, right? Newark Airport, right? It's hot. It's stuffy. It smells. It's always crowded. And there's always a problem. Years ago, I had told Father Vicus, no more trips through Newark. I can't do it anymore, right? But we have to save the chapel's money, and I'm all about saving money for the chapels. Going through Newark was cheaper than going through Chicago O'Hare. Right? So I get to Albany Airport in the morning, and I have the United Airlines app. You know, we're very professional about this. On time. Your flight is on time. I said, oh, wow, okay. This is great. Sit down, look at the gate area. On time, Newark. This is great. Go over, get my coffee, sit down. A few moments later, Ladies and gentlemen, the gate area, I just want to let you know our flight is delayed this morning. Uh, uh, there's been a mechanical problem. Uh, the aircraft's been here all night. They've been working on it through the night. <laughs> the part, they just got another part that was just got in. She said, but it's only going to be maybe 20-minute delay. We'll, we'll be leaving in 25 minutes. So she, she got off. <clears throat> I have a purple stole I keep in my pocket. Um, I was ready to take my purple stole, walk over there, and say to her, do you want to go to confession now or later? <laughs> we are not leaving in 25 minutes. I know you people too well. But I didn't, you know. <clears throat> we left five hours later. Five hours later, right? We got to Newark, right? On time. Right? We're sitting there in the gate area, and I'm just like, it's all right, everything's fine. You know, this is, this is God's will, right? Ladies and gentlemen in the gate area, we have a mechanical problem on this aircraft for Denver. If you have a flight leaving before 7 o'clock this evening out of Denver, you must go down to customer service 10 gates down and reschedule. You're not going. Okay, better call, better call the folks in Idaho Falls, tell them I'm not getting there tonight. Go down there, stand in line for about an hour. Uh, a man shining shoes kept us all entertained. <laughs> As I'm standing in line, United Airlines app goes off. Your plane is now boarding for Denver. I said, wait, I haven't changed my flight yet. I go back down to the gate. I'm like the last person on. They're about to leave without me. And... Uh, Finally, you know, I get to new, I get to Denver, <clears throat> and uh, I tell the gate agent my sob story, and he gets me a hotel meal vouchers. All these. He says, "Father, I will take care of you. This is terrible." I said, "Oh, you know, it's all right. It's, you know, it's all right." <laughs> you know? These are the new works in our life. Things go wrong when we least expect it. We all have something, either large or small that is going to go wrong, that is going to change in our life. Unexpected phone calls, unexpected emergencies, or little things can go wrong. We have to see that no matter what it is, it is from God. And we have to patiently bear it. Whether it's a Newark airport or it's some person who's difficult at the moment to deal with, because we are our own difficulties for ourselves very often, no matter what it is, to use that as a penance and two words, two words when it happens, 
God's will. And then do it. Do it for him. Do it for him. All these new works or flights into Egypt that you have to, do, you have to bear in your life, do it for God. Like St. Joseph bore his. Finally, and quickly here, the sacrament of penance. The sacrament of penance going to confession. Going to confession. While it is true that only mortal sin has to be confessed, still confession can also have venial sins, both deliberate or semi-deliberate venial sins can be confessed. In order to receive Holy Communion, one who is not burdened with mortal sin does not have to go to confession first. They can receive Holy Communion in the state of venial sin because Holy Communion can take away venial sin. And I'm saying that uh, only because one should never deny themselves Holy Communion because they thought they had to go to confession first and confess their venial sins. And should never deny themselves Holy Communion unless, God forbid, one is in the state of mortal sin or some other reason, sickness or whatever. But how often we go to confession, though, just depends on the circumstances and occasions on our lives. And I would... Uh, counsel you, first of all, confess venial sins that are you know of that are deliberate, and then the semi-deliberate venial sins. Work on the big stuff first. Obviously, mortal sin, then a willful venial sin, and then the little things. And be ever mindful that confession as a sacrament gives us an increase of sanctifying grace. It is something that should, even though the church says once a year is enough, it's something that shouldn't be once a year. It should be more often than not. For look at confession as Christ coming into your soul by means of grace and overturning the idols of sin, just as he overturned the idols in Heliopolis. So by daily and devout prayer, by carefully but without anxiety examining our conscience, by mortifying ourselves, that is by doing penance, accepting, seeing God's will in everything, and by regular confession, we will flee the Herods that are around us. And we will even overturn, as it were, the idols of sin in our souls. And thus, we are imitating St. Joseph in the flight into Egypt. And as a certain priest put it, since we are saving the life of Jesus within our soul from the machinations of those aggressive foes that are forever striving to destroy him.